I would ask you to turn to Ruth 4 if you have not already turned there. The portion of it has already been read by, by Pastor Dan right now. And we're going to spend a few minutes there. But before we do that, I would like to pray. So we'll be in, Revel- we'll be in Ruth chapter 4. It's in the Old Testament right after the book of Judges and right before the book of 1 Samuel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, on this Christmas Eve, we want to thank you. We come thanking you for your son Jesus in whom you gave to the world. He came to make propitiation for sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, for all who put their trust in Jesus Christ of all nations, of all peoples, not just Jews, but to the Gentiles, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth. Oh, Father, this morning, we ask you to come and minister to us as a people as we celebrate the most... I don't know, celebrated season, commercialized season, nostalgic season, most money spent season, time off season, often not because of a worship of Jesus Christ, but because of many other things. Oh God, I pray that you would help us, every man or woman or child, young or old, new Christian or non-Christian, or mature Christian, everyone here would come to truly know, to truly trust, to truly delight in, to truly live for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. God, I pray that you'd be with those that are are traveling right now or who will travel later today. I pray that you'd be with those who are sick, and I pray that you'd minister to them in a special way, especially those who are sick with a long-term illness that has laid them up, or they don't know if they'll recover. Oh, God, give mercy and grace and help to those who are here who are really discouraged. They're overwhelmed. They're anxious. They're sad. They're grieving. For those who are depressed, to those who are confused and don't know what to think, I pray that you would help them. God, I pray that you would help to those that are here this morning who feel like their lives are so full. I pray that they would do well with that fullness. They would take the fullness you've given to them and they would be good stewards of it. And for those that feel very empty this morning, maybe very lonely, maybe very discouraged, maybe feeling like their dreams have not been fulfilled. They haven't recovered perhaps from a divorce or from the loss of a loved one or just the failed dream they've always wondered and wanted and it has not come to pass. I pray that you would help them. God, this morning I pray that you would be with our our brother and sisters in different churches in this area whether they be in Byron or Fenton or Linden or Swartz Creek or Grand Blank or Flint or Holly or Howell, Brighton, all around us. Be with our 
pastors and members and believers all over, I pray, God, that we would shine the light of the world in our worship and our celebration of Christmas. Now, God, I pray that you'd help me for these few minutes. I pray that you would help all of us, parents and kids. I pray for the kids who would normally be in the in junior church, that you would minister to them in a special way by being in the service, and they would be encouraged and blessed. Help us all now, in Jesus' name, amen. The ways of God are glorious. God comes to rescue sinful, loved people by being born of a virgin to a very ordinary girl from a small town. She's engaged to a man, but not yet fully married, a carpenter, and they travel to Bethlehem. No room for a home birth, a stable has to do. Shepherds hear the news first, lowly shepherds. That's the way of God, but an occupation with much meaning. This child will be the great shepherd of our souls. This child would come and lay down his life for his sheep. Oh, the ways of God. This baby would endure much loss. The way up to the right hand of the Father would be through the cross. The best is yet to come. There would be much weeping at the rejection of this child. Herod would kill or try to kill this child, but would kill a lot of babies in the stead. The religious leaders would seek to kill him. Eventually, the Romans will crucify this child at the instigation of the Jewish people. It looks like it's all lost. He's not full, but empty. He must have been mistaken about who he was. Oh, the ways of God. And the book of Ruth that we're in right now shows us another glimpse, another side of the ways of God. We're in the the book of Ruth, this Old Testament story of just four chapters in which it tells the story of the lineage of David. You heard that as you heard Dan read both Matthew 1, and did you catch? Oh, there's Boaz, there's Ruth, and there's this man named Perez from Judah. And then at the end of chapter 4 of Ruth that Dan just read a few minutes ago, you see another set of genealogies. Now, if you're not with us and you haven't been with us for the last three weeks, I just want to catch you up to speed, first of all. The story of Ruth is the story in which we find in chapter 1, a woman named Naomi. And her name means pleasant. She married, she has two sons. She's married to a man named Elimelech, and they live in the town of Bethlehem. Sound familiar? And in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, there's a famine in the land because, well, we're not sure why there's a famine, but this is the time of the judges, and God's people are rebelling and going after other idols, and they're doing what's right in their own eyes. They come up with a plan hey, we hear there's food in a far-off land named Moab, a place where God's people were told to not intermingle with them because of their idolatry and their rejection of Israel. But they go to Moab. And in Moab, things get worse. Not only did she have to leave her home, but her husband, Elimelech, dies. 
She has two sons, as I mentioned, and they got married, but they didn't marry people from their own tribe or clan or people that, as far as we know, were worshiping the Lord Jesus or God, Yahweh, who'd revealed himself. They married Moab, Moabite wives. One was named Orpah, one was named Ruth. Well, these two sons, we don't know how long they were married, but we have, it says that they were in Moab for 10 years. And these two sons, Malon and Chilion, die. So now we have Naomi, her two daughter-in-laws, no men to carry on the line, no sons or grandsons coming of Naomi. What will they do? And Naomi, we find chapter one ending where Naomi is devastated. She returns home and she says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. God's in control of all things, but God hasn't been good to me. God, don't call me, my name means pleasant, pleasant, but call me bitter, Mara, because that's how God has treated me or is dealing with me. I went away full. I had my husband and sons, but now I've come back empty. But she wasn't empty. One of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, came back with her. It says Ruth clung to her. We find later that not only did Ruth cling to her, but more importantly, Ruth clung to, grabbed hold of God, the true God of Israel and ran under this God for refuge and said, that is the true God who made the world of whom I will throw my lot in with. And I'm gonna leave my mom and dad, my family land, and I'm gonna go to the true God's land with my mother-in-law and trust that God will take care of me. Chapter two begins with this woman, Ruth, a widow, a young widow, a Moabite woman, a foreigner in the land of Bethlehem, goes and gleans in the field because God had visited the people and brought a harvest. It's barley harvest. It's spring. And Ruth gleans in the field by God's care. And she just happens to come to, and we know it's not luck, it's God's grace and providence. She comes to a field of a man named Boaz. He's a close relative who treats her with kindness, provides for her, protects her. Boaz has heard already the news traveling through the town that this woman is the real thing. She's a godly woman. She's a woman that showed kindness and grace, who while she was born in the Moabite land, she has come to put her trust in God, and she has cared for her mother-in-law, and he treats her with generosity. But we find that he's a special relative He's qualified to be one who could marry Ruth and carry on the line of Ruth's, first, Ruth's husband, Naomi's husband, and continue the line in the heritage and the property. We then move to chapter three. Because what we find is in chapter two, Ruth has been gleaning in the fields and taking, taking in provision through the two harvests that were going on and... It's now time, and in chapter three, we find that Naomi says, Ruth, it's time that we find a rest for you. And Naomi gives a strange plan for Ruth to go to a threshing floor late at night, lay at Boaz's feet, uncover his garment, and just see what happens. And at that time, Ruth basically proposes 
to Boaz, asking Boaz, this honorable, godly man who has shown kindness and dignity and protection and honor to her. She proposes and asks Boaz to continue the line, marrying her, providing for them, and continuing the line of her first husband so that the land would stay in the family, something that God in the Old Testament revealed was very important because the land belonged to the Lord. But we find at the end of chapter 3 something, uh, a snag takes place. Boaz says, yes, I will marry you, but I am not the qualified next relative to take this duty, to purchase this land, what's called redeem you, and marry you with the hope that we would have a child, and that child would continue this land, this land for Elimelech, Naomi's husband, there's a closer relative who's more qualified, and it would be not right for me to usurp that role without giving him the right of first refusal. I will marry you if he doesn't take his obligation or responsibility. So we come to chapter four. Now, chapter four is an exciting chapter, and yet it's filled with, it starts with a sandal removing ceremony and ends with a long list of names, a genealogy, and I'm gonna say it's still exciting because what we see here is God at work. We come to this chapter four, and I wanna read this to you, so look at Ruth chapter four. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down there. Verses one and two is Boaz saying, okay, I'm gonna do this the way God intended for us to do this. I'm, and he goes and he gathers a court to make this official. And behold, the redeemer, the man, that the nearer kinsman of whom Boaz had spoken to Ruth came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Now, the ESV says friend. It's probably not the best translation. It is a phrase that means such and such, so and so. Turn aside, so and so. And the writer is saying, you don't have his name, and it doesn't matter that you have his name. His name is not important. Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. So he gathered this guy. And to make it legal, verse 2, he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to that redeemer, Naomi, now we have his negotiating what's going to happen. He's, he's shrewd. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So, that I, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I will come after you. He's saying, okay, you have the first chance to take this property and he doesn't mention Ruth in this deal. And I think this redeemer is thinking, oh, 
there is an opportunity to get more property, more land on the cheap. I can have more harvest, more crops, more ability to accumulate my wealth, my inheritance. He's very worried about his inheritance. We'll see that in just a couple verses. So he says, sure, I'll redeem it. I'll I'll buy this. I guess in getting this property, what it meant is paying any debt that Naomi had. And now all of the harvest would go to him. The profit would go to him. And one responsibility, I got to take care of Naomi, make sure she's provided for. That's not that bad. But I get all this, this property and it will come to my name. Verse five, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order, not just so, well, she needs, she needs to get remarried to get provided for. No, that's not the primary reason. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So basically, you will marry her, and you will seek to hopefully have a child And that child will not carry on your name. It will carry on Ruth's first husband and father-in-law to carry on that land. And so it's going to dilute your resources ultimately in the long run. The Redeemer said, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And if you're following the story, I think Naomi's going, yes. He's saying, who? He probably hasn't seen Ruth yet. Verse 7. Now this was the custom. Now we have the legality here. Because Boaz cares about God's law and God's way. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He drew off the sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and to all that belong to Chilion and Malon, that's Naomi's sons, and also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of the, his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. And as Dan read, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house. And they know she's a Moabite. They know she's from another land. May she be like Rachel and Leah. Jacob's Wives, who together built up the house of Israel, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who came from Judah, and Tamar, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. 
He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, remember this is Naomi who they all said, who are you, chapter one? You, you lost your husband. You lost your sons. You lost everything. Who are you, chapter one? But the woman here say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And to those who are readers of God's word, and I pray that we'll all grow to be that if we're not, as we read from beginning to end, beginning to end, as we seek to devour what God's will and way is, we come to the end of these chapter and we hear these final words and we go, wow, Moabite woman, lost and completely empty of, didn't have a child with her first husband, now a widow, is the grandmother of David. Oh, the glorious ways of God. I pray that at this Christmas season, you will ponder the ways of God, the way in which he works in our lives, sometimes mysterious and sometimes in which we will go, why did you do that, God? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. This seems hard. This means sharp. This frankly feels like you are against me. The psalmist says, make me to know your way, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Unite my heart to fear your name. I want to just give to you, as we kind of sum up this and then go to communion, four ways of God that we can celebrate from the book of Ruth as we go into Christmas. Number one, empty is a place God often brings his people in order to bring them true fullness, okay? I, I hope that you will get this in your head and then your heart, even before it happens, but some of you are in this place right now. Empty is a place God often brings his people in order to bring them his true fullness. I wonder if this morning you feel like you're empty. You feel like you're, what categorizes you is loss. You, you just, I lost this. I'm devastated by this. This hurts. It could be you're single and you wish you, wished you were married. You're unable to have children, but you long for them. You're divorced and wishing a new marriage or a restored marriage. Or you lost a spouse or children or someone close, a parent, and you're devastated. Or you're lonely Maybe it's in your elderly years. Empty 
was the place where God brought and allows us to watch and see where Naomi was. And in chapter one, she says in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Don't call me Naomi. And by chapter four, the women are saying, blessed be the Lord. He has not left you this day without a redeemer. You'll be renowned in Israel. He'll, this, this child that's given to you, Naomi, through Ruth and Boaz, is going to be like a restorer of your old age. And your daughter who loves you is greater than seven sons. He's God, this is the way, behold the way of God in our lives. Sometimes that fullness that in this story, Naomi and Ruth experience fullness by at the end of chapter four, and you go, wow, look at what God did. It's like the end of the book of Job when God restores Job's life way more than what he had lost, it says. And though in this life, some of us will experience empty, and it feels empty and empty and empty and empty, and the fullness that we are right now longing for will not come to us. God is still working and he promises to bring about the true and the greatest fullness because this, the suffering as we put our trust in this God is producing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Paul says. Have you felt this morning that God has abandoned you? I want to say to you, he has you where he wants you. Look to him. Come to him. He will give reward to those who put their trust in him. And when he gives you that reward, it won't be because you earned it or merited it. It will all because, be because of his grace. But he will fulfill his promise to you. And if you find yourself this morning full, a lot of us do, give thanks. But make sure your hope is not in the external things of fullness of this life. Because God can just take them away. He's given them to you right now for you to use them to praise him and to love other people. That's, that's the first way of God. Empty, don't despair. Look to God, he's bringing fullness. Number two, God's economy of loss and gain is very contrary to our selfish impulses. Let me explain. God's economy, God's math, the way God works is, is not the way we naturally work in our own self-interested selfishness. Now, in chapter one, the other daughter-in-law is Orpah. She made the smart decision from an earthly standpoint. It makes no sense to go back to Bethlehem. I don't have a husband, he already died. And Naomi can't have another child to carry on the name. She's too old. And who in the world would ever marry me if I go to Bethlehem? And how will God ever provide for me? I think it would be better for me to just stay with my parents, with my, foreign, with my gods here. And she remains. And Ruth, having seen that there is a real God who cares for his own, the God of Israel, she comes under the wings of God and says, I buy into your math 
into the way you work in the world with loss and gain. Because having you is always gain, God, even though my decision means earthly loss. This is true in our lives. The call to follow Jesus is the call to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life in Jesus will save it. And so the ways of God, God's economy, God's ways does not always make good sense. And we find that at the end of this book in chapter four. I wonder if you saw that or thought about this. I was reading this whole book of Ruth as a family earlier this month with our kids, and we'd read it most mornings, what we call our morning prayer time before school. And one of my sons brought up, hey, Dad, did you ever see this in chapter four? My teacher brought this up in one of our classes. And, and he pointed out, that, did you notice, first of all, this man, this other redeemer, he has no name. He's just called friend. And I pointed out to you that the Hebrew has this strange Hebrew phrase, which just really means such and such, so and so. So there's a man named so and so who has a chance to marry Ruth and be the next heir of King David and Jesus ultimately. But he's all worried about the fact that if I take on Ruth, that might mess up my inheritance. Now, do you see the irony here? I want an inheritance to carry on my name forever. If I marry and risk all and do the honorable thing and sacrifice and be generous and take on Naomi's inheritance and land, including Ruth, I might lose my inheritance. And the reality, he loses everything. He's a no name in this book, in this book when names meant everything. And the reality is that we are to sit here and go, this is the way God works. To those who say, it doesn't make sense. For, for this redeemer, it didn't make business sense to sign up to marry Ruth. But it did spiritually. It did in a devotion to God that says, God, at a, as a business sense, I don't know how this can work, but I trust you. And you see that God will call us in our lives to regularly make those kinds of decisions. God, to honor you and to obey you, I might lose out on this in this business or in this situation. If I honor you and go through with this, how can I, how can I honor you and how can I make it with only 90% if I tithe? God's economy says, you put me first. How can I honor you? Why in the world can you explain people going to the mission field like Brian and Heather in a later stage of their lives? It doesn't make financial sense. It's not a great retirement plan. They're not with their children or their grandchildren. That's not the human, selfish, wise decision. But so, so it always is for God's people. And as we reflect on this story, we should say, oh God, help me. Help me to see things through your perspective. Number three, I want you to see the third way in which God works, and we see in this book. Do you see in, the, in Ruth, if you were to read this beautiful book of Ruth, you're gonna see God works 
through ordinary people who trust in him and seek to obey his commandments. Now, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, all honorable people, at least towards the end, I think Naomi has a change of heart in this, but all of them, none of them got the reward of God because they earned it by their works. God's grace was upon them from first to last. But God was working to the, through those who trusted in God, like Ruth. I don't know, but I'm gonna trust God. Boaz, this doesn't fully make sense, but I'm gonna trust God. God works through ordinary people like them, and he works like or in ordinary people like you and like me. This land, this Boaz was not a pastor or a king or a prophet or a nobleman. He's just a landowner who is a farmer. And Ruth and Naomi are destitute widows. And let me just point this out to you and connect it to Christmas. One. God uses ordinary God-fearing men, like we see in Ruth, who take responsibility, act sacrificially to bring God's kindness and grace to his people. That's what happens in this story. God uses an ordinary God-fearing man who took responsibility, act sacrificially, and he brought God's grace and kindness to his people. At the end of chapter two, Naomi recognizes God is being kind to me through this man. God is being kind to us through this man. And God uses ordinary, godly men who fear him, trust him, and show his grace and kindness. And we see that in the passage that Dan read in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, who's betrothed to Mary, finds out his, what he thought was a virgin fiancé, is pregnant and he knows it's not from him. The honorable right thing to do would be to divorce her. And he's gonna divorce her because she, is, she, is, she has been unfaithful to him in his mind. And yet it says he was a righteous man. He wouldn't wanna shame her. He was gonna handle it properly and caring. And he, but then the angel comes, changes everything. And he is a responsible, sacrificing, showing the grace and kindness. We find also in Ruth, that God, he loves to do this, trace this throughout scripture. He uses marginalized women who risk ridicule and rejection in obedience to God to mother saviors. God uses marginalized women who risk ridicule and rejection in obedience to God to mother saviors. You find that with Ruth. In chapter three, which we saw last week, she could have been ridiculed she could have been rejected and thrown out, but she's obeying Naomi. She's seeking to fear the Lord and continue this line. And God allows her to be the mother. I'm gonna say she becomes the mother of Jesus Christ, not the literal mother, but she's the mother in the line that goes all the way to Mary. And of course, Mary, the servant of the Lord, who trusts in the Lord, finds favor from God, if, if Mary wouldn't have faced ridicule and rejection, I don't know what she'd face. Finding out she's pregnant, saying she's a virgin, how is she gonna explain this? God in his mercy is working through marginalized women. This is the way of God. And, and do you see also that, I love this, God uses the sons 
of the ordinary to bring life from the dead in extraordinary ways. We find in this story, this son comes and is the restorer of life to this family to carry on their name for forever, which God had promised. If, if you trust me, I'm going to carry on your name forever. Ultimately, he was going to bring a, God was going to save his people from sins. This is a picture of another woman who would come and she would bear a son. She, a very ordinary woman, a son who would bring life from the dead in extraordinary way. The angel said, fear not. Behold, I'm bringing you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, the God's way is to use ordinary people. The last thing I want you to see of the ways of God the best is yet to come. Ruth rings with this truth. The Bible rings with this truth. As you go to Christmas this year, remember that the best is yet to come for those who are in Christ. We read at the end of these last words. Now, these are the generations of Perez, and, and then it goes, he fathered Hezron, and it goes through all this, and then to Boaz, and to Obed, and Obed, Jesse, and Jesse, David, and we keep going in Matthew and say, and, and the Christ... David is the king who is the father of a greater king, Jesus Christ. And so when the Israelites or the Jews and the Pharisees come to him and Jesus says to them, who is the son of, who is the son, the Christ that's going to come? Whose son is he? David's son. You see, when Galatians says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might be, receive adoption as sons. I'm gonna, we're going to take communion here, but before we do that, I, I want to I call you on this Christmas Eve to the greater son of Ruth, and that is Jesus. The, the long heir of Jesus, Ruth, this mother, Jesus came. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's what it's meant to be about. It's what all that really matters. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son who was born of a woman. And he was born under the Old Testament law, a law that continually reminded us we are so messed up and we break the law all the time. And whenever we try to, make, when we try to keep the law, we fall against the law. We break, our, break ourselves against the law and show how much we are ultimately failing. And he came under that law in order to save us and to adopt us as his children. And so we are for all who have turned away from our sins and repented. It says in John 1 John 5, that Jesus appeared Christmas in order to take away our sins. Three verses later, Jesus appeared, we know, in order to destroy the works of the devil. And he came in order to make purification of our sins. We will come to this table this morning in, 
It's a fitting way of celebrating Christmas. We come to this table as an expression of our faith in God through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and was born of a virgin in order to live a perfect life and die. And to die to be the redeemer, the purchaser of us so that we would have our sins forgiven. We would be made children of God and live with him forever, which the best is yet to come. We come to the son. We come to the son who was born to die on a cross to be our kinsman redeemer. He was our closest kin. He not only faced the risk of losing his wealth, he gave his wealth, he gave his life so that we would be God's sons and daughters forever. He came to rescue just ordinary people like you and me, men and women and children who come to the end of themselves and realize the only way of life is to throw my lot in with him. I want him, I need him. He is the true life and we rely on him. So if you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, you're not sure if you're a Christian, I want to invite you to Christ this morning. He saved me. And there's most of the people in this room would say, he saved me. Praise the Lord. I didn't deserve it. He saved me. He calls and invites you through me, through us. He invites you to him. He invites you to receive Christ, to receive Christ to be your kinsman redeemer who takes away your sin and gives you sonship or daughtership with God forever. All he says is you repent, turn away from your own trying to be right before God and you receive him as a gift. And I pray that you do this this morning. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up to prepare for, for us to have this communion and sing and I'm gonna invite the elders and deacons who are gonna come and serve if you'd come on up here. The one who was born in a manger 30 years later or so came and he sat with his disciples knowing that he was about to die and he said, I want you to take of this meal and I want you to continue taking this meal symbolically remembering my death, my life, my coming return the fact that you're going to take bread, which symbolizes my body that was broken for you when I died on the cross, I am the bread of life. You eat of me all of your life, my life for your life, and it never stops. And as you take of the wine or the juice, as you take of that, you remember that my blood was shed for you to give you eternal life. And as wine is to gladden the heart, so Christ gladdens our heart in him and nourishes us forever. If you're here and you're saying, well, is this for me today? If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're not looking to yourself, but to him alone and he is your savior and you've been baptized in Christ Jesus, I invite you to come to take of this meal. And what we're gonna do in just a minute, I'm gonna invite you to go stand up and go out the outside aisles and you'll come down and make two, two lines and you'll take both a piece of bread and you'll take a little cup for the juice and you'll go back to your seat and sit down and, and wait for me and I'll guide you and we'll take this communion together. 
What we do is Jesus said, take and eat this and take and drink this in memory of me, declaring his death, looking to me. And this is this gospel reminder that he is our life, this son who was born to us on Christmas. And so I'm gonna, what we're gonna do is we sing, or as, as the music begins to play, they're gonna play a few times through a song we're gonna sing after about halfway through this communion preparation. And then we'll, so take this time to, as you come up the aisle, spend this time praying. Spend this time thanking God. Spend this time confessing your sins, rejoicing in his forgiveness. And then look at your brother and sister, young and old, and just rejoice that God saved them too. God is working in them too through Christ. On that, on that last night before he would be arrested that night, he, he blessed it. And so let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you that Christmas is, is way greater than just a, some kind of nostalgic spirit that should make us generous. But it is anchored in the reality that you were so generous and you gave of your son to us so that we would have life forever. I pray that we'd be really generous people. We'd be like Boaz who embraces your economy and loss and gain and sacrifices and trusts you. But oh God, we never do it earning your love. You loved us and gave your son for us. Thank you. God, now, would you minister to us in a special way? And I pray that we would worship Jesus Christ in such a fitting way on this Christmas by taking this communion and remembering his death, his life, and his coming return. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to take communion.